Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. This week, we welcome my friend Ron Brownstein, senior editor at The Atlantic, CNN analyst and author. Ron, glad to have you on. Joe, great to be here. Uh, I, 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 are we going to discuss the improvement of dining options in Des Moines since uh, you first encounter, we first encountered it in <laughs> well, 1984? Yeah, it's a long time ago. <laughs> that's a long way back. You know, but I also want to talk to you about Rock Me on the Water, your book about... Uh, LA, LA, yeah. LA. Well, I grew, I don't know if you know this, but I grew up in Los Angeles and that was exactly mm-hmm. my high water mark there, uh, high school kid yeah. in, the, in the late uh, mid to late 70s before I went uh, came came east to work in politics uh, but I, I love the book and I, I highly recommend it to people and it it really seems to I think you know in a lot of ways get to the impact of that that time and that place on a lot of what we're seeing today a lot of the ripples yeah. that have, have come through. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the book is about the really the, the confluence, the incredible constellation of talent that came together in L.A. Uh, in the late 60s, kind of cresting in the early 1970s in music, movies and television simultaneously. I mean, you had working literally blocks from each other, you know, Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt on one hand, Norman Lear and Carol. Carl O'Connor, Larry Gelbart and Alan Alda, James Brooks and Mary Tyler Moore on the TV side. And then in the movies, you had the two generations of great directors. You had the, the older generation like Robert Altman and Robert Penn and Roman Polanski and Mike Nichols, who really, Bob Rafelson, who were producing their greatest work. And the first influx, the first real contributions from the baby boom directors, Spielberg and Scorsese and Lucas. Uh, so it was this incredible confluence of talent. And that is just fascinating and fun in itself to kind of bring back to life. But it was also a moment of generational transition, very much like today. And and the story I tell is how the social critique of American life that developed in all of the movements of the 60s that were powered by the baby boom, by the liberal side of the baby boom, um, were incorporated into pop culture in the early 70s. It really, pop culture really was the bridge between ideas like greater suspicion of authority in business and government, more autonomy for women, uh, greater demands for inclusion among marginalized groups, uh, civil rights and so forth, gay rights, the environment. Um, All of those ideas were embedded in pop culture in the early 1970s and largely in response to the growing buying power of the baby boom, which were changing culture before they changed politics. And that in many ways is the parallel I see today. But if you look at pop culture today, it reflects this kind of panoramic diversity, this very inclusive vision of uh, millennials and Gen Z, but they are still flexing their muscles in politics. They are still not the dominant force in our politics, although they are they are getting there. Uh, and in many ways, the story of my book is how culture can give you a better uh, prediction of what the country is going to look like in 10 years than politics does at the same moment. Getting to then the politics of today, where one of the things that you and I have been talking about or, or tweeting back and forth or following you and things you've written about is sort of this authoritarian movement. Yeah that really, you know, has taken over what used to be the Republican Party. I mean, it, 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 it's basically it, it, any of the uh, uh, folks of goodwill left in that party be either being purged or they're held hostage, mm-hmm. in my view, either either out of fear for their political careers or some of them even for fear of their, their lives because they see the, the violent side of this authoritarian movement. I mean, is that a response to this? You know, the parallels between the 70s and now 
is uh, the electorate is older and whiter than the country overall. Always has been, probably always will be, uh, given who votes and you know turnout patterns. And as a result, um, at a moment of generational change, like the rise of the baby boom, like the millennials and Gen Z today, um, you may be able to assemble a winning plurality or majority of voters by telling them you're going to stop the change they see around them being driven primarily by these younger generations. That's what Nixon did. I mean, that's what the silent majority was. I mean, the, the, the paradox or irony that I talk about in my book is that precisely as these ideas were triumphing in popular culture and beginning to change the way that we lived, Nixon was winning elections by, you know, consolidating the voters who least liked the way the country was changing. It's exactly the same thing uh, with with Trump uh, and and the GOP today. I mean, you know, I believe I, I wrote for the first time in 2012 that I believe the fundamental fault line in our politics is between what I called a coalition of transformation and a coalition of restoration. Right. I mean, you have a Democratic coalition that is centered on the people and the places that are most comfortable with the way the country is changing, which tends to be the largest metros, uh, young people, uh, college-educated whites, a big share of the minority population, as well as secular voters, and your Republican coalition that is increasingly centered on the places and people who are least comfortable with the way the country is changing, uh, which tend to be non-college whites, evangelical whites, and non-urban whites. And what is happening, what Trump showed, first of all, was that that coalition was a little bigger than most people expected, that it got a little close, never got to a majority, but it was kind of, you know, in that range. Um, but I think what we are seeing in the Trump era and especially after is that the fear of demographic and cultural eclipse among the coalition of restoration is eroding their commitment to democracy. I mean, if, if the choice comes down to basically preserving American democracy and we have known it as we have known it and allowing the secular, liberal, diverse, information age democratic coalition to change you know what they consider quote the real america or uh trying to hold power as a conscious minority in the country by rigging the rules uh, i think it's pretty clear that most of not all of most of the republican party is going to pick the latter and the question is what does that one fifth one quarter maybe at most 30 percent of the party that is uneasy with the authoritarian strain what do they do in the future? I mean, do they continue to vote, even though they're un uneasy with Trump et al., do they continue to vote for politicians who will enable all of this? And I don't think I know the answer. I don't think anybody knows the answer, but it's a big question. Well, it also goes to, to Biden in governing right now, too. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I, you know, I've been saying is that I, I think there's a, a kind of like this two different universe kind of danger. One is that... You know, in marginal seats, I mean, to just for one, for to govern, you've got to have compromise, obviously, in this situation. You've got to try to win some of those votes over to actually get anything done. We're seeing this maybe with the infrastructure bill, we'll see. And I think, look, having worked for mm -hmm. Doug Jones in Alabama, I can tell you that the few Republicans, women in the suburbs, younger Republicans, college-educated Republicans, they moved to him only because they saw him as a common ground, reach across the aisle, right. you know, work together to get it done yeah, kind of right. Democrat. So that has to be there, particularly in these marginal seats that are going to be fought over, battleground seats that are going to be fought over in, in 2022 and, and then into 2024. On the other hand, the true, all of that, 
including success of a bi, you know, bipartisan infrastructure bill, kind of lulls everybody into thinking, no, we really still mm. are in this two, two political party system. Yeah. The other one is an authoritarian movement that will that wants to take power through any means, including changing, you know, suppressing votes and, and all the other things they're doing. It's almost like you got to sound the alarm on the authoritarian movement at the same time, give some of the elected electeds room to maneuver and Joe Biden in particular uh, in terms of governing during during this right. crazy period. Well, you've encapsulated, I think, what is essentially the, the two sides of how the sharpest analysts view Biden, because on the one hand, you can say that Biden is the perfect Democrat for this moment who can reassure enough center-right, previously Republican-leaning voters to win the presidency and, as you say, provide an umbrella for Democrats in swing districts for four and maybe eight more years until the underlying demographic and generational change will reduce the need of Democrats to win those voters, right? I mean, although I'll come back to that in a minute. So Biden, Biden in effect, buys Democrats enough center-right white voters through the 2020s until you get to the toward the end point of this decade where millennials and Generation Z are the clear plurality, if not majority. I think by, by 2028, there will be 46% of eligible voters will be Z or millennials. And at that point, you can have a, a figure who more represents the changing nature of the Democratic coalition, uh, you know, and I think there is a strong point of view, okay, a strong argument for that point of view. I and mean, if you look at how narrowly Biden himself, a 78 year old white Catholic, how narrowly he was able to win Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and to a lesser extent, Michigan, I think a lot of Democrats, and I'd be interested in your thought on that, looked at that and say, wow, Okay, is Kamala Harris going to be able to win those states in four years, given, you know, given how tough it was even for Biden as a much more culturally accessible figure for those voters? So that's the one side. I mean, he is the guy who can help Democrats hold the White House while waiting for the generational cavalry to arrive in the form of more millennials and Z. The other side is that Biden is not going to be the guy who fully calls out and defines the moment we are in. I mean, Yes, he went to Tulsa, he used very strong words, um, but there is a fear that he is more focused on showing that he can work with Republicans um, than calling them out as either obstructionists or threats to democracy. I mean, Joe Biden, you know, I think in his heart of hearts, still maybe not, doesn't go as far in this direction as Manchin, but he, he does not share, I think, equally the sense of alarm that a lot of younger Democrats do about the Republican Party's transformation into something that really is beginning to depart or already has started to depart from the American political tradition. It looks more like what a party you'd see in Hungary or Turkey or Poland, where they try to gain power and then use state power to make to rig the rules and make it harder for the other side ever, ever to win. So that's the upside and the downside of Biden, right? I mean, you know, he is kind of normalizing Republicans even as they are radicalizing in many ways. And, you know, he didn't go to Texas or Georgia before the votes there. And he is not going to be the one out front saying the filibuster has to go. He is more likely to celebrate when he can work with Republicans in a way that makes it harder for other Democrats to really you know, if, if these guys are being reasonable and working with me, how are they also a threat to democracy? But I think those are the two sides of the coin that Democrats get with Biden. Well, I mean, that's the I, I think it's not just him. I think a lot of a lot of Americans 
but definitely Biden, Manchin, uh, most I, probably a lot of the Senate uh, suffer the under the delusion of thinking it's still the same, you know, that, that, that we're still in this bipartisan two-party system. I mean, that, that, it, that it, particularly Biden, you know, uh, you know, his, he's a creature of the Senate. I mean, that's, that's who he is. And, and so he's not, I agree that it's not likely that, 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 and I do think it's delusional at this point. I mean, to not see how threatening, um, where the Republican Party is going, how threatening it is. Um, I mean, when you do, when you talk about more like a party in Hungary, <laughs> you know, I mean, when you think about a party in the United States going there and and continuing to grow, mm-hmm. um, I don't see him coming out of that. Uh, it, it, so I think the asset is that he lowers the temperature, that he provides that sense to people looking for it. And I, I do think there are a lot of people who also suffer, the, a lot of voters suffer from the delusion that there's two parties. Uh, and I don't like the direction my party's going, but I'll, I'll move over. Yeah. You know, Joe, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks about how uh, Biden's yeah. been lowering the temperature and yeah. especially with something like this bipartisan infrastructure bill. Ron, Joe, I want both your takes on this. Isn't that kind of like lulling some of the base to sleep a little bit and it might actually kind of work against us because as Ron you pointed out Republicans are extremely motivated and they're not going to buy that this bipartisanship is great right look I I think Biden is facing an incredibly complex situation because on the one hand there is clear evidence from what is actually happening in Iowa and Georgia and Florida and Texas and Montana uh, and Arkansas and other states where uh, Arizona, that the Republican, the, the bulk of the Republican Party is radicalizing in a way, and and, and also the, the the rejection of a January sixth commission and and the the minimizing of the attack itself. That that the dominant faction in the Republican Party is radicalizing in a way that is kind of without real precedent in American political history, except for maybe the Democratic Party of the eighteen fifties in its defense of slavery before the Civil War. On the other hand. There is overwhelming evidence in polling that the majority of Americans want some want to lower the temperature and want signs of cooperation. So they are trying to walk that tightrope. And and you see it perhaps most clearly and whether it's possible uh, on this infrastructure idea where you can say, okay, look. Pouring concrete isn't really that ideological. Everybody wants to bring a bridge and a road home to their home state. So maybe we can make a deal with the Republicans on that. And we can justify kind of having this jerry-rigged, patched financing system for it on the argument, well, it's just a kind of one-time expenditure. So we'll do that on a bipartisan basis, because if we couldn't do that on a bipartisan basis, there's literally nothing we can do. You know, if you can't, if you can't get people to build a bridge so they can go home and cut a ribbon, what are they going to, you know? And then in parallel to that, we are going to do this party line vote to do a you know, wide range of things that Democrats have been trying to do really for 30 years since Clinton, universal pre-K, universal community college, uh, a, a basically a European style child allowance. Now, if he could pull off both of those things simultaneously and basically be able to kind of, you know, turn, turn, to, turn to voters on one side and say, I made the system work, we got a deal and turn to your voters on the other side, I still got most of what you want. 
that would be an incredible accomplishment. But it would still, even if you could do that, it would leave open the question of, okay, everything else you promise to do that is not economic, is any of it going to get done? Guns, police reform, uh, LGBTQ, LGBTQ equality, uh, above all immigration reform, dreamers, above all voting rights. So he, you know, there may be only so far he is willing to go in terms of blowing up Senate procedure. I mean, I, I talked to people in the White House to say, look, he is never going to be the point guy in saying that you have to get rid of the filibuster. Um, and it's not clear that they can get rid of the filibuster for anything, or perhaps maybe they can get rid of it only, maybe create a carve out, as we've done before on many other issues, for voting rights. But I think that is the, that is the, the tightrope he's walking. He's trying to show to, to kind of those center-right voters that he borrowed, that Joe talked about in Alabama, that he actually is genuinely committed to working across the aisle, and then trying to show to the base I am also going to go to the mattresses to get stuff done that you really care about. How far that extends, as I said, with the filibuster is really the biggest question of his presidency. Yeah, well, look, the, the reality is both parties have been really good at agreeing about spending money. So um, it, the infrastructure, yeah. again, your point about the bridges, but at this point, um, democracy, uh, protecting democracy, not so much. There's no bipartisanship right. there, you know. You know. And and it, it, it's worth noting that we have faced these questions most pointedly twice before, once in the 1860s and once in the 1960s. And the 1960s is recalled, understandably, Robert Mann's great, great book, The Walls of Jericho, Recreating the Civil Rights Act. It was a moment when kind of the mainstream of both parties came together to isolate the Southern segregationists who were then almost entirely Democrats, although Thurmond had already switched to the Republicans. So there was a bipartisan commitment to establishing a national floor of rights and saying that states could not diverge too far from that. The other time we did it though was the 1860s in the aftermath of the Civil War when we passed the 14th and 15th Amendments and we passed the Ku Klux Klan Act and the first Civil Rights Acts and the Enforcement Acts in the South. And Joe, that was done on an entirely partisan basis. Literally no Senate Democrat, House Democrat voted for any of that. I mean, there were a few Republicans who dissented, but the Democratic Party, what was left of it in the aftermath of the Civil War, was essentially a party that even in its Northern members were committed to this Calhounite vision of allowing the states to go their own way. And if you think about what was happening after the Civil War, where there was you know, mass violence in the South to prevent the freed slave from exercising any of their granted civil rights, including the right to vote, basically the Republicans decided that they could move forward even though no Democrats in Congress, including those from the North, were willing to constrain what their counterparts in the states were doing. Right. And so now here we are, what, 150 years later, and you have Manchin and Cinema saying that in the name of bipartisanship, Congress needs to give a veto to Senate Republicans on whether to constrain what Republicans in the states are doing. That is not what the Lincoln Republicans did in the 1860s. They did not say we will only act to prevent the, uh, you know, the offenses against democracy occurring in the South by Southern Democrats if the Democrats in Congress agree with us that it's wrong. They didn't do that. Um, and so that is that is the position that Manchin and Cinema has taken. It is utterly illogical given that, as you know, all of these bills 
that are restricting the right to vote are passing on a complete party line vote, as I showed in a recent story in the states. I mean, literally, apart from one bill in Arkansas, <clears throat> there have been three total Democratic state legislative votes for all of the major restrictive bills out of over set, roughly 750 cast. Right. And so they are saying that these bills that are being railroaded through over the uniform objection of Democrats in the states, that Congress should respond only if Republicans in the Senate agree to do so. That's not a sustainable position, I don't think. And it's going to be, you know, obviously the struggle is are they willing to carve out at least voting rights, what John Alter calls the democracy exception, to respond? There's a clear precedent in the 1860s. And we'll see what happens. I, but I do think that is the single most important uh, question of his presidency, whether they can establish a nationwide floor of voting rights. Because without it, uh, I think the cycle of red states restricting the vote just gets turned tighter and tighter in years to come. Right. And then, you you know, the other thing I, I saw recently, I think you quoted Jonathan Chait. Um, I, mm -hmm. I read you the quote, the modern polarized system has created in effect a new constitution with overwhelming advantages for the Republicans. New laws require 60 votes, but existing programs can be defunded with 51 votes. Judges who can be appointed with a mere 51 votes can strike down laws that required 60 to pass them. Right. That's, I mean, it, it, you know, the more polarized they were able to drive this thing, uh, and that's sort of the thing. So you, you have Biden trying to lower the polarization. You have all these literally, as you said, poll after poll showing voters want to see bipartisanship. They don't have, that's what I talk about, this delusion that the Constitution's actually working, that we've got two parties, that they can work together and get things done. It's, yeah. a, it's a delusion. And it's not just... Biden, I mean, it's a lot of voters, a lot of people that right. that politicians are going to have to, uh, Democrats in particular, are going to have to win over um, in in this in the next election. I, I mean, at the same time, if you don't raise the alarm, this is the thing I've been struggling mm. with, is because I've done a whole series yeah. of shows about this podcast about raising the alarm about the authoritarian threat that that I I think is is likely to get more violent too, which mm -hmm. is scary enough. How do you, how do we do both things? Is the pro and, and so it, it, maybe it's the outside groups that do uh, raise the alarm on the authoritarian movement and you let Biden and Manchin and the, the you know, the, the elected officials try to work their way through, through the, what they do about the filibuster. I agree with you. So the, uh, uh, Voting rights ex exception has to be at, at least the minimum, hopefully, that we that they they do to change that. But we'll see where that goes. Well, look, I mean, the, the fundamental question, uh, I think, uh, for Ameri the challenge for American politics in the uh, in in through the 2020s is going to be: Can the majority rule, or are we creating the conditions for a sustained period of minority rule? Democrats have won the popular vote in seven out of the past eight presidential elections. If you give half of each state's population to each senator, Republicans have represented a majority of the U.S. population in the Senate for only two of the past 40 years. But obviously, in both cases, uh, they have uh, won 
controlled power, I think the Senate about half the time and the presidency, what, for 12, 12 years over those, over those, uh, over the past uh, 30. Um, and the, the rules of the Senate uh, reinforce this in the sense that, as Jonathan notes, and I, let me kind of expand on what he said, the things that Republicans care most about, they can do with 51 votes in the Senate. And that is cut taxes and appoint judges and Supreme Court justices. They, the reconciliation allows them to cut taxes with 51 votes and the changes in the rules, first by Reed on lower court just, judges and then by McConnell on Supreme Court justices, allow them to appoint judges and justices with 51 votes. So on the things that are most important to the Republican Party, there already is a majoritarian system in the Senate. Um, and in fact, uh, and on the things that Democrats care most about, you have to get 60 votes. And, and as you know, um, because of, the, of what we started with, that the Republican dominance of the smaller states and Democrats uh, being stronger in the larger states, you have a situation where senators representing an extraordinary minority of the population can block actions backed by senators representing, you know, an astonishing 50, 60, 70 million vote margin right. of, of, of the population. Um, now, you know, there's nothing, nothing is going to be done about the malapportionment of the Senate. So the question in terms of, you know, we're not abandoning two senators per state. We, we can't, there's no way to, there's no way to do that. So the question is, what else can you do to try to create something that more, uh, that, that allows the Senate to more, and, and by the way, there's a strong racial implication of that too, right? Because uh, you, you have minority presence in the smaller states tends to be much lower. And so the Senate can be controlled by senators represent, representing states with a vanishingly small share of the, of the minority population. And people in those states have much more influence than the typical minority voter. So what, what levers do you have? I mean, oh, and, and I should, and, and if we add as like, kind of like, well, all the, and, and with all of this already there, now you have red state Republicans trying to change the rules in those states in a way that will not only cement their control of those states, but potentially give them enough assets in the Electoral College, the House and the Senate to control the national government right. as well. Right. So what's happening in the red states now is not only a question of fairness and civil rights and who's going to be governor of those states. It's an attempt to tilt the national playing field in a way that would make it more likely for Republicans to control uh, the majorities in Congress and the White House, even if they do not have majority support in the country, right? So that, you add all of this up and you say, okay, what are the levers Democrats have? Well, the one lever they, and, and, and the courts, by the way, are not an answer because the Supreme Court set all of this in motion with the, with the Shelby County decision in 12, 2013 that eviscerated the Voting Rights Act. So John Roberts isn't going to constrain this. So what, what levers do Democrats have? The, the one lever they have is unified control of the government, the ability to set national floor of voting rights, guarantee everybody access to early voting, mail voting, automatic registration, election day holiday. That is their lever. But to use that lever, they have to change the Senate rules. They have to be willing to do what the Republicans did in the 1860s, the Lincoln Republicans did, which, to say, which is to say it is important enough to set a national standard of rights that we are not going to let the minority party have a veto. And you tell me, I don't, you know, there are lots of plans for how to get Manchin and Cinema to that point, but I talked to one Democratic senator who said nobody knows where they will end up in the end and that they probably don't even know. Well, it's, again, the whole point of the delusion. If you don't think 
the threats there, if you can't believe, if you can't picture that this could happen in the United States of America, mm. then I mean, if you do, right? If if he did, if he saw that alarm, he he would he would you'd have. I think both of them would be would be you know for changing the rules. But if you're, I don't think Manchin sees it that way. That's I what think I'm you're saying. Right. That, that's that's yeah. my point. You know, I, I, that's the. And and bullying them into trying, you know, you got to see this. It's not necessarily going to going to work very well either. You although, know? although you know, it's interesting. I talked to some of the civil rights groups who met with Mansion, and obviously he moved. He wrote this very negative op-ed in early June in in the Charleston paper about the Democratic voting bill. And then when he came out with his principles on voting rights, they were much more expansive and went much further toward things Democrats cared about. Than, than people expected. And I do think that from talking to people who have spoken with him, I, I don't know that he wants to go down as the grave digger of American democracy, right? As yeah. the guy who insisted on preserving process at a time when the structures of democracy in the red states are under the most threat since the Voting Rights Act 55 years ago. And so I don't think that the story is over yet. I mean, you know, a lot of my colleagues in the media after the Republican filibuster said, that's it. This is now only messaging for 2022. I don't agree with that. I think that what happened with Republicans killing the, the, the expansive voting rights bill was a necessary and we'll see if it's sufficient step on the way, because everyone has always agreed that there was no chance to get the last few Democratic holdouts to change the filibuster unless Republicans right. showed in public that they were going to be intransigent on big things that are important to the country, the Democratic coalition cares about, especially voting rights. They now showed that. And so, you know, I think the next step is the Democrats are going to unify behind a stripped down bill that is built around the mansion principles. And as Senator Jeff Merkley said to me, they're going to say to Manchin and Sonoma, okay, you go find, we're, we're all in agreement to do what you said should be done. You know, we don't like all of it. We don't like national voter ID. We don't like the purging that you, we don't like the way you've changed the voting rights. But you know what? We will accept this. You go find 10 Republicans. And if and when they can find 10 Republicans, and I think they will find zero Republicans for anything that sets a national floor of voting rights, then the, the question is fairly and squarely put. At this point, are you willing to let the whole issue die? Are you willing to say we should do nothing if we have to do it on our own now that you've exhausted any reasonable possibility of bipartisanship? So I don't know how that conversation ends up, but it's coming. But that may be exactly what it takes to get Manchin to see the, to see yeah, the threat. That's the whole. Yeah, along with outside pressure, yeah. right? I mean, like, I think people see the combination of inside the inside game and outside pressure that basically says to him, look, do you want to be Strom Thurmond? Do you want to be Richard Russell? Is that what you want to be at the end of your career? Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully that that gets put to him in a way that that gets him and others to to see the real the real threat here. I think it was I think it was Ron Fournier who said that Republicans are stacking sandbags against the tide of history. No, it was me. It was you. No, it was me. It was That's me. Right. I, I said that Republicans. I mean, Ron look at the quoted you. That's right. Ron quoted Ron you. Ron quoted said, me. Yeah, I got and, it. And, you know, Ron and I used to work together. He he said that he was fast Ron. I was smart Ron. That was his. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's pretty smart, uh, you're too. You're both pretty smart. Um, yeah. Uh, he's pretty smart, too. But yeah, look, I mean, if you look at the states, you know, there are exceptions like Iowa and Montana, but most of the states where there is the greatest Republican interest in making it tougher to vote are states where nearly or more than half of everybody who is turning every 18 every year are kids of color. 
right? So the electorate, the, the, the new tributaries of voters into the electorate in these states is diverse. I mean, I, you know, it's 55, 60% of everybody who has turned 18 since 2016 in states like Georgia and Texas uh, and Arizona are kids of color. So you have a situation where Republicans now in, in those Sunbelt states are still the dominant party, even though Democrats are starting to win things in Georgia and Arizona, and uh, obviously they can win the governorship in North Carolina. They're the dominant party because they are just have, ha they've really strengthened their, their control over non-urban white voters. And they are using that statewide power that they have from their dominance of rural areas to both override the decisions on lots of issues that are being made by the governments in the big metros, but also to try to lay down these sandbags and to push back the day where this changing electorate can move them out of power. And I, you know what? Those sandbags can be pretty effective, I think. I mean, if Republicans are allowed to do the things that they are doing in the red states, I think they will significantly push back the point at which Democrats can consistently win those states. And as I said, it's not only an issue of those states. It, once you add up enough of these states, you have the potential to change the balance of power nationally as well. Yeah, the Electoral College can work for them. And so, Ron, we're, we're just about out of time, but wanted to just touch, I think, what you just brought up really gets nicely into your, your most recent piece you wrote on CNN, which was actually something we haven't talked about a lot on the show, which might be a ray of hope for Democrats for next year. Commonly, everyone's been talking about how much of an uphill battle it's going to be for Democrats, but you point out that, that higher turnout might actually be possible next year. I think you got into the 91 yeah. million Americans have voted Democrat recently, but only 82 have voted Republican. Right. Touch on that a little bit. Give us something to, to, to hope for here. Well, uh, uh, it's not my job to provide hope or despair, <laughs> but let, let, uh, but but just like kind of looking at looking at at, at 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 what happened. Obviously, there are a lot of headwinds for Democrats. The first midterm of a presidential uh, term, uh, uh, almost always the party loses the five seats that uh, the Democrats uh, need to stay below to hold the House, and you have the added threat of a severe gerrymandering. If, as we're talking about, Democrats can't use their one lever, national power, to set rules that limit that. But amid all of those headwinds, there is kind of an asset that hasn't been discussed very much. And Michael Podhorzer, who's the longtime political director of the AFL-CIO, using data from Catalyst, which is the Democratic targeting firm, noted that there are 91 million individual people who have voted separate, distinct human beings who have voted Democratic in one of the three elections of the Trump era, 16, 18, and 20, uh, as compared to only about 82 million uh, uh, Republicans. Now, in 2018, 118 million people voted. That was a really high number. Probably won't be that high again, um, but it's going to be higher than it was in 2014 when Democrats got creamed and only 83 million people voted. Most people expect somewhere between, at this point, 100 to 110 million people to vote. Now, given all the geographic issues that we're talking about, we were talking about, Democrats need more than 50-50 to win the House. They probably need somewhere between 51 and 52% of the vote uh, to win the House nationally. But even if that's the case, you know, there are 90 million people who have voted Democratic in one of the past three elections. They need somewhere probably between 52, 53 to 57 million votes to hold the House. And so, you know, the question is, can you activate those voters? You, you, you know who they are in a way that wasn't true, probably to the same extent in 2010, certainly not in 1994 when Clinton got creamed. You literally know who these people are. 
And the issue is, can you engage them and turn them out? And that really goes to Joe's point before, what is more likely to engage them? A, a record of bipartisan achievement or an alarm about where Republicans are going and how they might be trying to set the conditions for, for Trump to win in, in 2024, whether or not he, he, he uh, you know, attracts the most votes. That's a big debate in the Democratic Party. I think you're going to, the White House is clearly going to land on the former. I mean, I think they, they want to run on, we made your lives better in material ways. But is that going to be enough to turn out this pool of voters? Or do you need to talk more explicitly about what we have been talking about over the last hour, which are these threats? Um, I think there's going to be a lot of debate among Democrats about that. It's interesting what Joe thinks, um, but I don't think that is at all settled now uh, heading into you know this far from 2022. Well, I've maintained um, that we have to somehow do both uh, and whether that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that we both have to sound the alarm and activate, you know, folks to vote uh, and at the same time give some of the people running out there the room to be the bipartisan reach across the aisle to, to win those districts because, you know, some of them are still, yeah. uh, you know, we got to do, so somehow we got to do both. I don't know. I'm with you. Um I don't think Biden is going to be the one sounding the alarm. So that may, may be right. my job and the you rest know, of people. In writing this story, someone said to me that if you are a Democrat in a swing district or swing state in the Senate, you really want somebody else to be sounding the alarm. Right, exactly. You, you don't want to do it yourself, but you need somebody to say, look, th there's a real issue here that if, that if Democrats don't show up in 2022, Republicans in the House and Senate will reinforce, accelerate, intensify what's happening in the states and uh, and and grease the path for a Trump you know, revival, whether or not he wins the most votes. You, you know, uh, you as Abigail, you know, you you on the front line don't want to be doing that. Exactly. But you need somebody to be doing it. And it is unlikely to be Biden. Who is that somebody? Well, Ron, you're right. I think we do need um, somebody to step up. Uh, I think it may be outside groups that need to do it because I don't see Joe Biden um, taking it. And I also think that you're right. There are a lot of Democrats, I keep pointing out, that are in these swing districts and swing states where they, they need, um, again, to sort of carry a mantle uh, other than this. They need somebody else to do it for them while while they talk about governing and coming together um, and appealing to those voters who still want that, uh, it's going to be outside groups, I think, uh, that need to come out in a pro-democracy coalition. Right. But Ron, thanks for coming on. You can follow Ron on Twitter at Ron Brownstein and find his work at CNN and The Atlantic. We'll include links in the show notes to his book and some of the articles that we've talked about. As always, Please subscribe and leave a review uh, of our podcast on Apple or wherever you listen. You can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question in the reviews on iTunes. We'll see you on Tuesday with another special episode you will not want to miss.